As you know, if you were here on Sunday, we entered a very interesting book. Hosea, if you were going to title it, if it was a novel out there on the bookshelves, it might be called The Prophet Who Married the Prostitute. This story, and I absolutely believe it, is a true story. It's not just a fictional tale that Hosea told or something that he acted out. It's something that he lived out, a true story of restoration in the face of rebellion. Where God sets it up and says, go get a wife of harlotry. As I said Sunday, go to the red light district. Get your wife from there. A woman who has already practiced in these things. And as we talked about Sunday, verse 2 in chapter 1, I believe that's the verse, it's pretty clear when he says, take your, yeah, it is, verse 2, take to yourself a wife of harlotry. What does that mean? It's very clear. And so in this true story, a story of, of grace beyond betrayal, he takes a woman who is already a harlot, brings her to his home, legitimizes her, loves her, calls her his own, She gives him at least one child that's his. And in all of this real life that this real guy is really living out in in the center of things going on in Israel, God is working personally, intimately in the life of this woman, Gomer. As well as in the life of this man, Hosea. As well as speaking to the entirety of his people, Israel. And in all of this, through the real life and the true prophecy of Hosea, the Lord reveals for us a deep, genuine love. We get to see in this God's love. We get to glimpse His heart. And we get to even see it to the extreme. His heart broken over infidelity. And there is a a deep emotional pleading in the pages of this book. And by the way, if we have any feeling at all, if our hearts beat in the slightest, what God does, what He says, how He interacts here in the book of Hosea, it should should call us out of casual, permissive, all-inclusive, half-hearted faith. You know, so much of uh, of the church today, just kind of like, eh, you know, it's cool. I want a passionate love relationship with Jesus to be defined by that. That's what I want to be known for. So Hosea, let's recap. Hosea, his name means salvation. He goes and gets Gomer. Her name means to complete. And that's what he's doing in her, trying to bring her to a complete place. She bears him a son, Jezreel, the firstborn. And because of the way it's worded in the Hebrew, she bears him a son. He's involved in the process, obviously. And Jezreel means to sow, but can also mean to scatter. In the same way that a sower scatters a seed, it can be a positive thing, it can be a negative thing. Well then, Gomer has a second child, a daughter. Perhaps not Hosea's. Her name is Lo-Ruchamah, and that means no mercy. Then she has a son, also probably not Hosea's. In fact, there's even more of a reason to think that the second-born son is not Hosea's. His name is Loami, which means not mine. And implicit to the story now, Gomer takes off on Hosea. We know that because in chapter 3 he has to go get her. 
But now after bearing these three kids, after being brought into legitimacy, brought into a home, loved by a man, now she goes back to the red light district to her old life again. She goes back, actually lands herself in the world of human trafficking. He's going to have to go buy her back because she has apparently gotten herself into sexual slavery. You know, you think at that point, shouldn't Hosea be done? Gentlemen, let's just take a poll. (laughs) Your wife leaves you and becomes a streetwalker in Hollywood. Do you go after her? Or at that point, do you just say, I'm not, I can't. I don't even know where she's been, what she's done. What she's done to my heart, I, I can't bear it. And if Hosea should be done with Gomer at this point, shouldn't God be done with Israel? Really, shouldn't He just be done with all of us? He says, I will scatter without mercy because you are not my people. But then, as we saw on Sunday morning, we get halfway through chapter 1, and in verse 10, that amazing minor word with major implications, yet, though all this goes on, yet, the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in that place where it is said to them, you are not my people, it will be said to them, you are the sons of the living God. And the sons of Judah and the sons of Israel will be gathered together. Remember, they were divided at this time. I'm going to gather you together. They will appoint for themselves one leader, Mashiach, Jesus Christ. And they will go up from the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. You could say, not the day of scattering, but the day of sowing. The day of replanting. And then chapter 2 begins, Say to your brothers, Ami, and to your sisters, Ruhamah. And you see what he just did? He left off the low. There's no low in this verse. Now it's just Ami, not Lo-Ami. It's not my people, but it's my people. It's not Lo-Ruchamah, it's just Ruchamah, mercy. So now he's speaking and he's talking to his people. And he calls them his people. And he, and he calls them with, with mercy. And what's happening here is though the nation as a whole has failed, though the nation will no longer be called his people, yet... Follow me on this. His people will still be called His people. What do you mean? The national identity is done. But the personal identity, the one-on-one, God's love for each individual Israelite is still there. His mercy for the individual remains there. My people. He tells the prophet, speak mercy to them. Listen to the word now He has for these children, Ami and Ruchama, or my people, with whom I am giving mercy. Verse 2, Contend with your mother. Contend! For she is not my wife and I am not her husband. Let her put away her harlotry from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. Bible. (laughs) I mean, he's graphic. When we're talking about harlotry here, God's talking about harlotry. But it's interesting, he says, contend with your mother. Well, wait a minute. What's going on? The nation of Israel is the mother. The people are the children. And God actually divides the two. And now he calls on the children to contend with the mother. Kind of sounds like a revolution. Do you get what's going on? He's calling on the people 
to contend with the nation. He's calling on the people to, spiritually at least, take up arms. Contend. That Hebrew word contend, reeb, means to plead with or literally to oppose. It can be to oppose physically, to oppose verbally, to stand against, or to oppose legally, to take legal action against. And here's the thing, the Lord always calls His people to be right with Him, even if their nation is not. There is a time, please hear me clearly on this, there is a time when the children are called to contend with the mother. When the people are called to contend with the nation. When is that time? It's when the mother is unfaithful to the father. When the nation is unfaithful to God. When the nation is going this way and God is calling us this way, contend with the nation. You go the way of the Father. You do not go the way of the nation, indeed, if you are children of the Father. And this is now the call of God through Hosea. He is now, he's, he's cut off the nation. The nation's going down, but he's speaking to the people. And he's saying, contend. As Isaiah in the south is saying at the same time, Isaiah 58 verse 1, Cry loudly, do not hold back, raise your voice like a trumpet, declare to my people their transgression, and to the house of Jacob their sins. Jesus put it this way, Matthew chapter 10 verse 26, Do not fear them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light. And what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. And Jude, half-brother to Jesus, he wrote in his letter, contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. The book of Jude is a powerful little book. In fact, Brian's going to be teaching it a couple of Sundays coming up. You don't want to miss that. Because in the book of Jude, it's interesting, he starts off writing this letter intending to talk about salvation. He's just down with pen and paper, starts to write, oh, I want to talk about salvation. But the more he thinks about it, and the more the Spirit invades his thoughts, the more he realizes, I've got to call on the people to take up spiritual arms. To contend for the faith. Stand up. Plead the case of the Gospel. And that's what's going on here in Israel. God through Hosea is saying, contend with your mother. We got to contend in this country, gang. And I want to encourage being contentious to anything that is opposed to the will of God. As happened this last week, if you didn't hear about this on Monday, our Supreme Court upheld the right of local officials to open council meetings with prayer. A victory! Yay! You, you can be a little more excited about it. That's good news. Because this is the town of Greece in New York, which was uh, represented by the ACLJ, um, went to all the way up to the Supreme Court because they were told you can't... And you, it's too many Christian prayers going on in, this, in, this, in these town meetings. Too many Christian prayers. So it's not fairly representative of the people and therefore the government getting involved in religion, which we were told by Thomas Jefferson would never happen, but obviously is, separation of church and state, which the whole idea was to keep the state out of the church, not to keep the church out of the state. 
Anyway, so they just open council meetings with prayer. It's a big deal. It goes all the way to the Supreme Court. And in a 5-4 to four ruling, the ruling states that prayer, Christian prayer, openly Christian prayer, saying in Jesus' name, Amen, does not violate the Constitution. Well, duh! <laughs> Even if the prayers routinely stress Christianity. But don't miss this. Four out of nine justices dissented. We're right on the edge of half of our Supreme Court telling us that prayer in the public place is unconstitutional. That should frighten Christians. That should stir us up. That should cause us to contend with our mother, who right now is in rebellion to our father. Again, Jay Seculo of the ACLJ, uh, American, what is it? Center for Law and Justice, right? Yeah. He said, this is a sound decision that recognizes the significance of our nation's heritage and tradition, though nearly half of our Supreme Court dissented. Rebellion rushes in like a flood when the children refuse to contend for the truth. And God calls to this place of contending because there's a price for the children's silence. Listen to this, verse 3. If we don't, if the contention doesn't happen, if we're silent, verse 3, I will strip her naked and expose her as on the day when she was born. Do you remember the description of Israel's birth? Ezekiel 16. Let me just read this to you. On the day when you were born, your navel cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water for cleansing. You were not rubbed with salt or even wrapped in cloths. No eye looked with pity on you to do any of these things for you, to have compassion on you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field, for you were abhorred on the day you were born. He says, when I passed by you, I saw you squirming in your blood. And I said to you, in your blood, live. Yes, I said to you, live. What he's saying there through Ezekiel is the nation existed because God called it into being. Because God picked it up bloody and squirming in the field, dying there, and said, no, 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 I'm going to have this nation live. I'm going to bring life here. And by the way, I think our nation exists because God at one time said live. Same with us. Verse 3 continuing on, he said, I will also make her like a wilderness Make her like a desert land, desert land and slay her with thirst. Also, I will have no compassion on her children because they are children of harlotry. Wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. So now the children are getting reamed along with the mother? Only if they continue in mom's harlotry rather than contend with mom's harlotry. That's really the choice. You've got one of two ways to go here. There is no middle lane to take. You either contend with the sins of the nation or you continue in them. And God calls us to make a choice. Verse 5, For their mother has played the harlot. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers. And he's talking about idolatry in the spiritual sense, going after other gods. But in the physical sense, just like Gomer being unfaithful now, to Hosea, sneaking out at night, messing around behind his back, and ultimately back downtown. I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. By the way, that's prostitution defined. I go after my lovers and they pay me. I get what I have because I service them. 
Verse 6, Therefore, behold, I will hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She will pursue her lovers, but she will not overtake them. And she will seek them, but she will not find them. And then she will say, I'll go back to my first husband, for he was better for me then than now. And this is what God does. Listen, if you're banging your head against a wall, perhaps it's because God doesn't want you to go that direction. You know, if you find that your way is is hedges of thorns, understand God has a divine purpose behind thorns in our lives. Thorns in the hands of God, hedges of thorns in the hands of God are the revelation of His grace. Where do you get that? Well, I've got a great example for you. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, Paul is writing and he says, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, Paul had seen great things. For this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. We don't know what that is, what it was. There was something in Paul's life that was painful. Something that made his life difficult. Some have said maybe it was poor eyesight. He couldn't really even see to to write, which is why we had Luke and others writing for him. Uh, Some have said maybe he had just different physical ailments. We don't know what it is. He just says, concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. Lord, take this pain away from me. Ever prayed that prayer? Lord, would you please just relieve me of this ache, of this difficulty, of this struggle, of this thorn in my life. If you would just take this, then it'll all be good. And we wonder, why doesn't he do it? Why isn't he making it easier for me? And I think of our brothers and sisters in China who would say, don't pray, it gets easier. Because the hardness of of life in China is what's causing the explosion of evangelism. Don't pray that the persecution stops. God's using those thorns, those hedges of thorns. Well, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, He has said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Then Paul responds, Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Thorns are not a bad thing. In our lives. Those hedges are there for a reason. Those walls. It is because of grace that He puts up those thorny roadblocks. Proverbs 13.15 says, Good understanding produces grace, favor. But the way of the treacherous is hard. The more treacherous you are, the more difficult God's going to make your way. By the way, the third time Paul shared his Damascus Road testimony... Three different times in the book of Acts, he talks about meeting Jesus, seeing Jesus and being called to his ministry. The third time, he said something he hadn't said before. It's one of my favorite little passages. Acts 26, verse 14. He says, when we had all fallen to the ground, they're on the Damascus road, and Jesus appears, a great light begins speaking, and all the guys fall down, and Paul is blinded by the light. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So obviously, God had been poking Paul. He had been prodding Paul. He had been goading Paul. Paul's on this journey to persecute Christianity, and God's going, it's not going to be easy for you. Poke out. 
Better knock it off, jab. You know, stab. You go this way, I'm going to poke you. You go that way, I'm going to goad you. And that's what the thorny hedges do. They help us stick to the right path. And the walls that God makes make the wrong path more difficult to find. So there's grace in this. Don't just hear judgment. There is grace. I am I'm building up thorns and walls. Verse 8. For she does not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the new wine, and the oil, and lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. What's he saying? Israel, all that you have comes from me. You, you think you went out and got this by your hard work, your turning tricks? No. I gave this to you. Psalm 50, verse 12, God says, if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you, for the world is mine and all it contains. What, are you going to get God a burger? <laughs> he owns everything. John 16, 15, I love this. Jesus says, all things that the Father has are mine. Okay, so if God has all things, and all things that the Father has belong to Jesus, guess what Jesus has? All things. I like to put these things together for you just to you know, help understanding. But then he says, Jesus says, therefore, He takes of mine and will disclose it to you. God's got it all. Jesus has it all. And God takes those things of Jesus and brings them to us. That's how good the Father is. Verse 9, Therefore, I will take back my grain at harvest time and my new wine in its season. I will take away my wool, my flax given to cover her nakedness, and then I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one will rescue her out of my hand. Satan never rescues. It's not even in his playbook. His plan is to lead you into sin, to lure you that direction, and then hang you out to dry. You know, it's, it's absolutely remarkable. Come on, try this out. Oh, look what he's doing! That's what Satan does. Lures you and then accuses you of the very thing that he lured you to do. And all sin can offer us, and you all know this, is more sin. And more sin ultimately just brings more sorrow. And the Bible says finally death. God says, no one's going to rescue her out of my hand. Verse 11, I will also put an end to all her gaiety, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her festal assemblies. I will destroy her vines and fig trees, of which she said, these are my wages, which my lovers have given me. And I will make them a forest. In other words, all these good things are just going to get overgrown. And the beasts of the field will devour them. I will punish her for the days of the Baals, that's Baal worship, which she used to offer, or when she used to offer sacrifices to them, and adorn herself with her earrings and jewelry, and follow her lovers, so that, note this, she forgot me, declares the Lord. So, so again, hear the heart of God. He is the lover spurned. He is the husband denied. He is the spouse forgotten. And again, he reveals that a nation in rebellion is one that believes that its own prosperity is due to its own exceptionalism. That's a sign of a nation in rebellion. 
And I remind you, under Jeroboam II, who was king for 41 years of Hosea's prophecy, under Jeroboam, the kingdom of Israel did quite well economically. They were financially in a very good place. There was plenty in the land. It's really the last time that the people were blessed. And while blessing them, God was saying, these blessings are from Me. They're coming from Me here. James tells us in chapter 1, verse 17, every good thing given, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. You don't have any good thing in your life but that came from God. It's all from Him. We didn't earn it. We don't work hard for it. We don't deserve it. He gives it. Praise the Lord. Now, the minor prophet brings a major promise. Israel's future, in spite of all this rebellion, in spite of God's guaranteed punishment of the people, check this out in verse 14, Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak kindly to her. And you might note this, speak kindly literally means I will speak unto her heart. I'm going to speak into her heart. These are the words of a loving husband. These are words of romance, gang. And then I will give her vineyards from there. And the valley of Accor as a door of hope. And she will sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. And verse 15 is a very specific thing. The valley of Echor is right outside of Jericho. What happened in Jericho that would cause the people to sing as they came out of Egypt? (laughs) When the walls fell down. When they marched around seven times and they blew the trumpets, the walls just fell over. And they conquered Jericho and they praised the Lord and it was a place of great song, the Valley of Accor. But that singing was very quickly replaced by sorrow. You may know the story. It happens in Joshua chapter 6. God placed a ban on all of the plunder that would have been pulled out of Jericho. He said, you take the precious things, the silver and gold, and you put them in, you, you prepare them for the tabernacle. But you don't take anybody. No man of Israel can take any plunder here. That was God's ruling on this. And we know that in Joshua chapter 7, verse 1, the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully in regard to the things under the ban. Note that the word sons is plural. And it says, For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah from the tribe of Judah, took some of the things under the ban. Therefore, the anger of the Lord burned against the sons, plural, of Israel. Achan took the stuff, but God's anger burned against the son. Why? Because, I'm guessing here, I'm surmising, there were others who were in on it. Achan was the one who did it. But at least his family was in on it. The stuff was buried under their tent. They had to know it was there. But the sons of Israel, there were others involved. They ignored God's ban. And so along comes Achan. His name means troubler. The valley of Accor means the valley of trouble. And in the next battle following Jericho, the battle against Ai, you all may remember Israel was routed. 36 men were killed. And they come running back into camp, not understanding how God who had gone before them, even to take down Jericho in a supernatural way, could allow them now to be routed when they fight against Ai. And God says there's sin in the camp. 
and they narrow it down to the tent of Achan. In the valley of Accor, Achan and his family were taken out and stoned to death, every one of them, to pay for this sin. But what's marvelous here is in the days of Hosea and Isaiah, God promised to make the valley of trouble, the valley of Accor, into a door of hope. And that's what He's saying. I will give her her vineyards from there. Verse 15. And the valley of Accor as a door of hope. I'm going to make this a good thing. This valley is not going to be remembered for the trouble of Achan. It's going to be remembered for the hope that I bring to you, Israel. Isaiah, prophesying at the same time, also references this same valley. Isaiah 65, verse 10, where the Lord says, Sharon will be a pasture land for flocks, and the valley of Accor a resting place for herds, for my people who seek me. So the valley of trouble now is a door of hope. Verse 16, it will come about, note this, the phrase, in that day... In that day, declares the Lord, you will never, no longer call me Ishi. You will no, you will call me Ishi. You will no longer call me Baali. What's that mean? Ishi means my husband. Baali means my master. God's saying you're not going to call me a master in those days. You're going to call me husband. We're going to get away from this whole master lord thing, and we're going to get more personal in that day. What day is he talking about? Getting this whole section is the millennial kingdom. Beginning in verse 14 and running down to the end of the chapter, he is promising the restoration of Israel in the millennial kingdom when Israel will call God husband and not master. Verse 17, I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth so that they will not be mentioned by their names anymore. In that day, I will also make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, the birds of the sky, the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and I will make them lie down in safety. The covenant gang with the beasts and the birds and the creeping things is none of them are going to bug us. You realize you're not going to need bug spray in the millennial kingdom? Is that great? Verse 19, I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness, justice, in loving kindness, in compassion, and I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. Martin Luther referred to those, I believe he called them the six, the six gemstones of a wedding ring. Forever, forever in righteousness and justice and loving kindness and compassion and faithfulness, I will betroth you to me. And then you will know that I am the Lord. It will come about in that day that I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the heavens and they will respond to the earth and the earth will respond to the grain and the new wine and the oil and they will respond to Jezreel. Here in the positive, God sows. I'm going to sow in the land. And it's going to produce the vines of grapes and the new wine and the oil from the olive tree. The land is going to be fruitful. I'm going to tell the heavens to bring the rain. It's going to be great. Verse 23, I will sow her for myself in the land. And I will also have compassion. Compassion. Racham. From Rahama. Lo Ruhama, no mercy, no compassion. Now he's saying, I will have Raham. I will have compassion on her who have not obtained compassion. And I will say to those who were Lo Ami, not my people, you are Ami, my people. 
And they will say, You are my God. Jezreel, Ruhama, and Ami, all three are now mentioned again, but the kids now back in town with no more lows. Only highs. It's only good. And wonderfully, check this out, the mystery of the church is hinted at in their names. And we wouldn't have known this if the Spirit hadn't hadn't told Paul to tell us this. Turn in your Bibles over quickly to Romans chapter 9. Down in verse 22. Romans 9.22 What if God, although willing to demonstrate His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much, much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And He did so to make known the riches of His glory upon vessels of mercy, which He prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom He also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. As He also says in Hosea, I will call those who are not My people, Ami, My people. And her who is not beloved, beloved. And so it shall be in that place where it was said to them, You are not My people. There they shall be called sons of the living God. And Paul points it out. He put, that's the verse right there from, from Hosea chapter 2, verse 23. That in these children's names we hear a hint of the church. Because God says, Now not only am I going to do this for My people who were rejected, for these children of their harlot mother, But I'm going to do it for others also. I'm going to do it for Jew and Gentile alike. I'm going to bring them all together in this land. And I'm going to sow the land. Millennial Kingdom gang, it's going to be awesome. It's going to be marvelous. Go back to Hosea now. Hosea chapter 3. If you are in a valley of trouble or a world of hurt, just right now in your life, Understand that Jesus desires to take the valley of trouble and turn it into a door of hope. That's what He does if you'll give your life to Him, if you'll allow Him to lead. Mind the hedges of thorns. Stop banging your head against that wall. Let Jesus speak into your heart. Chapter 3, verse 1, Then the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. (laughs) Now the raisin cake, the whole idea there is not just like a, a tasty treat. The raisin cake was a pagan food for the gods. It was an idolatrous cake that was eaten as part of pagan worship, as part of the whole pagan ritual. So that's why he points this out. It's not a ban on fig newtons. And he says, go again, love a woman. Notice he doesn't name her. But it is Gomer. We're still talking about Gomer here. But he says, go love a woman. Go get her. So I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a half of barley. Which was barley enough, I think. I, you know. Verse 3, Then I said to her, You shall stay with me for many days. You shall not play the harlot, and you shall not have a man. And so, and this is amazing to me, I will also be toward you. 
Now, see, if he was getting his just desserts, he'd say, okay, I just paid for you, I'm taking you home, and you can't be with anyone. I, however, am going back to the red light district, and I'm going to do anything that I want to do to pay you back. But he doesn't. He now says, not only have I bought you to be faithful to me, but I'm going to show you once again my faithfulness to you. This is what God commands Hosea to do. Honestly, I think if we applied this extreme example today, so many marriages would be saved. If we said even, and I know this is tough teaching, but even in cases of infidelity, if we recognize this simple truth, that God never commands divorce. He allows it. He allows it especially or specifically in cases of infidelity. He says there are times where the infidelity is so bad and the person is so unfaithful, yes, you can be freed of that marriage. He allows for it, but He never once commands it. I think that's interesting. The Lord is not so righteously indignant that He says, He was unfaithful? Get out! Now! No, He says, if you have to, then I will free you and you're not bound to that marriage. But Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, Matthew 19, verses 7 and 8, He never commands it. And here's the issue. Love is not, you know this, I'm just going to repeat myself, love is not a feeling. It is not a feeling. If love is a feeling, then romance would carry you from one bed right into the other, and that's what our culture does. That's American culture. You love someone, quote-unquote, you sleep with them until you don't really love them anymore, and then you go find someone else. And you just keep doing this and doing this and doing this. Multiple partners. Some of us thought back in the 80s... We thought when the AIDS epidemic hit that it would vastly curtail all of the sexual activity in our culture. It is absolutely the opposite. When I, just from the the media, the TV shows, the movies, and just from hearing the talk, talking to my kids, my college age kids, about what their friends are doing, it is unbelievable to me. It's not one or two relationships and then marriage. It's multiple. And it's expected that if a, a guy is dating a girl, they're going to sleep together. That's just that's what you do, right? That's just assumed. That's because our culture has bought into the lie that love is how you feel. That love's emotional. And when the emotion's gone, you walk away. Not true. Love is a decision of the will, even when it's difficult. Ask my wife. I am not always the easiest guy to live with. Love is a decision of the will. It is a choice that we make. And I I will say again, I know that you can't make the choice for the other person in the relationship. And so if you have been hurt by someone's infidelity and they made that choice and they walked away, again, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 7, let them go. You let them go. But we have a choice to make in these things. And what the book and the man Hosea does is show us that the truth is we don't fall in and out of love. We choose to love. 
The idea that, well, we're just not in love anymore. Bogus. If you're not in love anymore, go home and be in love. You know, make the choice. I don't feel like it. I don't care how you feel. It's not my marriage, not my problem. (laughs) No, no, no. no. (laughs) We're just not in love anymore. It's not a valid statement where love is concerned. We can, however, choose to love even in the face of betrayal. And that's what Hosea has to do. And that's what Hosea is an example of. That's what God shows us. I love you even though you have been unfaithful to me. Don't raise your hands. Anyone here been unfaithful to God? Guess what? He still loves you. Why? Because he just feels like it? No, because he has chosen to love you. And that's faithfulness, gang. 1 Corinthians 13. Verse 4, i got to go there. Love is patient. Love is kind. Is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own good. It's not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness. It rejoices with the truth. And then this is just the, the, the amazing verse... That just doesn't do it justice. This is just like the slam dunk, okay? Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. Love never fails. I fail all the time. But love never does. So this prophecy for Israel is also a practical teaching for marriage today, for our marriages. Man, if if Hosea can go buy his wife back out of prostitution, maybe we can pursue restoration in our marriages, whatever it costs. Verse 4. For the sons of Israel will remain, watch this, for many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, and without ephod or household idols. Afterward, the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they will come trembling to the Lord and to His goodness in the last days. Wow. How can a person not believe the Bible? Wow, that's like that's prophecy fulfilled. Just verse 4. Just verse 4. This is what's going to happen to Israel, God says. They're going to be without king or prince. And they haven't been with a king or a prince since Babylon, gang. Since 586 B.C., there has been no king or prince in Israel. Well, there have been, you know, prime ministers. There have been governors. No king, no prince. I'm taking that away. Messiah the prince, he came and went. And after him... Nothing. He's coming again. And Israel's going to have that king. He says they're going to be without sacrifice for many days. And once the second temple was destroyed in AD 70, it's been 2,000 years, gang, that Israel has been without sacrifice. They cannot even keep their observances in Torah law because there's no temple, no temple, no altar, no altar, no sacrifice. He says there's not going to be a temple. There's not going to be pillars. There's no place to offer up. And there are five of them. Remember five sacrifices that God required of Israel? 
Leviticus chapter 1 through 5 details these. The burnt offerings, the grain offerings, the peace offerings, the sin offerings, and the guilt offerings. And none of those are in existence anymore. Jesus fulfilled every single one of them at the cross. And that's a great study, by the way, to look at those five sacrifices and compare each and every one to Jesus because they're all five cameos of Christ. They all five point to Jesus. Stunning to look at those. He says here, interestingly, you're going to be without ephod or household idol. Household idol is the word teraphim. And this, the ephod here is not talking about the ephod on the high priest. It's talking about idolatry. So you're not going to have a king. You're not going to have a place of sacrifice. You're not going to have a temple. All this is going to be taken away from you. And by the way, you're not going to have idols either. And why is he pointing that out? Bottom line is he's saying Israel doesn't even have a rabbit's foot to rub. (laughs) You got nothing. You have no means by which you can divine supernatural things. By which you can understand things that are spiritual. Now understand this. Get this. What the Lord is saying here is that without king, without sacrifice, without even ephod or idols... Israel would become completely secular. And they have. They are wholly a secular nation. The nation of Israel today. And they'll speak of Torah. And they'll go to synagogue. But their connection to the supernatural is cut off. They can't even interact with God. Which is why so many Jews today believe God is dead. And they really do. There are many, many Jews who you talk to who just say, yeah, God, we think He just must have passed on at some time. He's gone. He's not there anymore. Or maybe He just doesn't care anymore or whatever. Completely secular. The fulfillment of that prophecy is stunning. It will be even more stunning when verse 5 comes about that they're going to return and seek the Lord and David their king and they're going to come trembling to the Lord in His goodness in the last days. It is a messianic prophecy for the millennial age. This is going to happen. As secular as Israel is today, they will be all the more spiritual in the days of Christ's glory and in the days where David is raised up as king again. Huh? David king? Jeremiah chapter 30 verse 9 says, They shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. We've talked about this. He's going to resurrect David for the millennial kingdom. Resurrect David? That's kind of weird. What, you don't believe in resurrection? Isn't that kind of core to our faith? If he can resurrect me, guess what? David's coming back too. David's going to be there. Ezekiel 34, verse 23. Then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them, and he will feed them himself and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Now, when we studied Ezekiel, I I told you at the time, and I know this because I went back and checked my notes, I told you at the time that I think that that's talking in a messianic way that Jesus is the son of David and when it's talking right there anyway for, for other reasons going on in Ezekiel 34 that right there where he refers to my servant David he will feed them that he's speaking of the son of David Jesus Christ however I also think because of other passages Jeremiah 30 among them that David himself will be reigning at that time and David Guzik said something at the men's retreat this last weekend that clarified it for me. 
And it's so simple, but the way he put it is, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Here's what he said. He said, I believe while Jesus will be king over all the world, David will be king over Israel. Yeah, that makes sense. That he'll be king over the region. He'll be raised back, greatest king the Jewish people ever had. And God's going to bring him back and restore him. And Jesus will be king over him and all the world. So just as Hosea brought back Gomer, the Lord by the precious and costly blood of Jesus that saves us will also redeem Israel in the last days. And we come now to the second part of the book. I told you Sunday, if you divide up the book, you can divide it the first three chapters, which is more the the home life of of Hosea. And then chapter 4 through uh, 14, the last section of the book, is now all about the homeland of Hosea, the spiritual life of Israel. Watch this. God's direct dealings, He begins by taking legal action against His people. Listen to the word of the Lord, O sons of Israel. For the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land because, watch this, there is no faithfulness. There is no kindness or knowledge of God in the land. There's swearing, deception, murder, stealing, and adultery. They employ violence so that bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore, the land mourns. And everyone who lives in it languishes along with the beasts of the field, the birds of the sky, and the fish of the sea disappear. As we have seen previously with other prophets, before passing judgment, God makes a case. And that's where we're going in chapter 4. He's laying out a court case. He is sentencing Israel, but even before the sentence, He's telling them why. And it's a breakdown of the nation Seen in three very specific factors there in verse 1. See if this sounds familiar. There's no faithfulness. The word in Hebrew is a met, and the word means truth. Israel was a nation for which truth no longer mattered. Second problem, no kindness. The Hebrew word there is chesed. It's the word for grace. There's no grace. All civility is gone from Israel. All mercy, all grace given to other people. And thirdly, there is no knowledge of God. The Hebrew word is deat, and it means understanding, and these are the things that bring down a nation. These are the problems that also bring down the individual. That is, truth denied, grace refused, and understanding of God rejected. God says, you got all three things going on in Israel. That's why I'm casting out the mother. That's why I'm saying you contend with her. Alexander Pope once said, Know then thyself, presume not God to scan, the proper study of mankind is man. In 1855, a 20-year-old Charles Spurgeon opened up his Sunday morning sermon at New Park Street Chapel in Southwark, England as follows. I believe it is equally true that the proper study of God's elect is God. The proper study of a Christian is the Godhead. Because the highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he or she calls Father. 
If you want to understand something of your Christianity, study Christ. You want to know something of how you are to walk as a disciple of Jesus? Study the Father. Because in the revelation of God, you find the revelation of how to understand yourself. Spurgeon was spot on. But here's the problem. Where truth is denied and grace is refused and understanding of God is rejected, the fallout affects everything. It's even more than a national fallout. It's more than an economic fallout. It's even an ecological fallout. You notice what he says there? That's amazing. The land mourns. Their sin, their rebellion, their lack of the knowledge of God, their rejection of grace and truth results in the beasts of the field, the birds of the sky, and the fish of the sea disappearing. The problem is not global warming. The biggest problem in the world today is not a natural problem. It is a supernatural problem. It is not a physical problem. It is a spiritual problem that is affecting our earth. It's global cooling to the things of God. As Jesus said in Matthew 24, 12, because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. As love grows cold, as grace and truth are denied, as the knowledge of God is diminished, even the land is affected by it. Verse 4. He says, Yet let no one find fault, and let none offer reproof, for your people are like those who contend with a priest. That's an interesting verse. Israel has now become a no-fault, no-reproof culture. We have a special word for that in our culture. We call it tolerance. There is no sin. There is no fault. There is nothing that's wrong. You do whatever you want. I'll do whatever I want. And we'll just coexist. And it's a big, flat-out lie. Tolerance. A no-fault culture. Don't reprove, God says. Don't correct. Because we wouldn't want to offend anybody, right? And that's what's going on in Israel. As I think we see in our culture, Paul said the exact opposite of this no-fault idea. He said in 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching and for reproof and for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. He told Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great Patience and instruction. And the Word of God is supposed to do that. The Word of God should rebuke us from time to time. And by the way, if you ever walk out of here on a Sunday or a Wednesday and you go, man, that was kind of offensive. Good! Good! It just Where did we ever get off thinking that being offended is a bad thing? Oh no, I'm offended. So? (laughs) Deal with it. Wasn't there a day in this country where you could be offended and walk away and still have a nice lunch? I mean, oh no, I've been offended. (gasps) They prayed at the council meeting and it was offensive to me. So be it. (laughs) And I don't mean to sound hard-hearted, but gang, maybe it was offensive because the person is in rebellion. And some rebuke needs to come to save a life. And notice he says, and I find this interesting, for your people are like those who contend with the priest. 
<laughs> Listen, if the priest is doing his job, which was to teach the Word of God, then arguing with him is arguing with God. And so by extension, let me just say, if you're offended by me because I'm shooting off my mouth, that's my bad. But if you're offended by me because I am preaching the word of truth, that's your problem. It's your issue. And sometimes that's exactly what God is doing, is offending you by a word of rebuke that didn't come from Pastor Rick. It came from the Word of God. I've offended people both ways. I'm an equal opportunity offender. So, you know. Sometimes I'm an idiot. And that can, that can happen. Some of my humor, I tell you, some of my humor gets me in trouble. You know this. If you've been here at any amount of time, you know this. I'll, you know, And when I do that, I'm sorry. Because I don't intend to offend with humor or jokes or offhand remarks. But I'm never sorry for offending people with the truth. And if there's something that comes out of Scripture and you go, ow, that really hurt, I, I, you know, if, if I'm meddling, right, Deb? <laughs> hey, you know what? So be it. Deal with it. Because God in His grace may be putting up a hedge of thorns for you or building a wall so that you stop going the direction you're going and by the way, I've told you this before, I've got to deal with all this stuff before I even sit in this chair. Before I even open the Word to teach. I've got to deal with this all week long. I'm offended every day. By the Lord. <laughs> I think what God's saying here is, don't shoot the messenger. Verse 5. So you will stumble by day. And here's where it gets sad. And the prophet will also stumble with you by night. And I will destroy your mother. Your mother, again, is the kingdom, the nation of Israel. Verse 6, and here's the key. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I will also reject you from being my priest. In other words, generations of children would now be secular instead of spiritual. Israel that was once called to be a priestly nation now is going to be rejected and rather than being priestly, they're going to be worldly and have been ever since. Verse 7. Now he says, last part of verse 6, Since you have forgotten the law of God, I will also forget your children. Now marvelously, you and I know something else and we see it even in this prophecy. He doesn't forget the children. He just takes the plan for Israel and says... I'm putting it on hold. I'm going to wait. And I'm going to open the plan to the entire world. And, and Jews as individuals can become saved part of the church. But Israel as a nation, I'm going to wait. And I'm going to deal with later. He hasn't forgotten, but he has set to the side. Verse 7, he says, The more they multiplied, the more they sinned against me. I will change their glory into shame. They feed on the sin of my people. Gang, sin right there? Literally, sin offering. They feed on the sin offering of my people. They're not supposed to eat the sin offering. Of the five offerings I mentioned before, there's only one they were supposed to eat. That was the peace offering. That was the one where they could bring it and share with the Lord. They would offer part of it on the altar, and the other part, the family had to sit right down there and eat it right there with with the Lord. Holy barbecue. 
You know? A picnic with God. That's what the peace offering was. The other offerings, they were not to eat the sin offering, but he says right here, they feed on the sin offering of my people. And it's a it's a Hebrew wordplay, but he's saying my people are offering up sin, and that's what they're feasting upon. And they direct their desire toward iniquity. And it will be, watch this, like people, like priests. What does that mean? It means everybody's going to be secular. It means the priest and the people, no difference. It means the pastors don't look any different than the fellowship. And I think they should. Not because the fellowship isn't as good as the pastor. Please don't misunderstand me. But I believe if someone is going to be teaching the Word of God and is going to be a pastor, is going to be a leader in a church, they should look at least like they're trying to be right. Like they're trying to be holy. There are some places pastors shouldn't go. Why should... I, I, I just... I love... I've talked about it before. Floyd Strader, Pastor Floyd, who was the last pastor that I worked for when I was in youth ministry and taught me so much. And Floyd came to work every day. Southern California heat. He came to work every day, black slacks and a white shirt. He kept his black jacket in his office. That's all he ever wore. I'm like, Floyd, you are so out of style, dude. You know, I come in in my, in my shorts and my flip-flops and Southern California, you know... My sunglasses, pushing back what hair I had. And Floyd, he always looked at... And, and I, I, I asked him about it. Floyd, Floyd, why don't you... I mean, I, I don't want to be offensive, but why, why is that, what's with the black suit? Come on, it's 85 degrees outside right now. This was like January. <laughs> why the black suit? And he said, Rick, I, I'm not here to look like everybody else. I'm here to teach God's Word. Yeah, but you look so different. See, I was in the mindset as a youth pastor that you got to look like the world to reach the world. And Floyd taught me, no, you don't. You follow Jesus. I think that is a, a message for all of us. But he says, like people, like priests, all going to be the same. Not going to be any difference. I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. Verse 10, they will eat but not have enough. They will play, play the harlot but not increase. Because they have stopped giving heed to the Lord. There is emptiness here. You're going to eat, but you're never going to have enough. You're always going to feel hungry. You're going to play the harlot, but you'll never increase. What does that mean? It's fornication without fruitfulness. Isaiah 26. I'll just read this to you and let you draw your own conclusions. He says, As the pregnant woman approaches the time to give birth, she writhes and cries out in her labor pains, Thus we were before you, O Lord. We were pregnant. We writhed in labor. We gave birth, as it seems, to wind. Do you understand what they just said? Labor pains or gas pains? They weren't sure which one it was. I'm not, that's what it says. I mean, that, that's the pic. This is good comedy here. I got to tell you, it's biblical. The picture of a woman who she's out to here. She's going to have a baby. She goes to the hospital, and it's wind. But God makes an amazing point, gang, and that is that false religion cannot deliver. False religion is emptiness. False religion is not. It looks full. It looks like there's a child there. It looks like there's fruitfulness, like there's joy about to happen, and then there's nothing. There's emptiness. Quickly, verse 11 harlotry. 
Wine and new wine take away the understanding. Let me give that to you literally. Harlotry, wine, and new wine take away the heart. Are you surprised that harlotry and wine are connected? Okay, here's where I meddle sometimes. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, Paul says, Do not get drunk with wine. That is dissipation. You know, like things dissipate. Throw some water on a hot iron and it just goes... Pssst. That's what wine does. It just dissipates. It's no good for anything but be filled with the Spirit. End of a long day. Wow, you're working hard, you're stressed out, you're wiped out, and what sounds better, maybe not to all of you, but, but to some of you, maybe what sounds better than just a nice relaxing glass of wine? It goes down warm, it tastes good, it relaxes, it calms the nerves, and Paul says, why would you want to be filled with that when you could be filled with the Holy Spirit? How about instead of pouring that glass of wine, How about kicking your shoes off, grabbing your Bible and spending 20 minutes with the Holy Spirit of the living God and allowing Him to fill you and remove your stress? See, what we're talking about here is wine that deadens versus the Spirit that gives life. Alcohol that numbs, the Spirit gives discernment. Wine takes away feeling. The Spirit offers comfort. You decide. For everything that drinking either imitates or masks, the Holy Spirit offers in truth and in real power. Verse 12. My people consult their wooden idol. Their diviner's wand informs them, for a spirit of harlotry has led them astray. Guess what? There's a spirit at work here. There's a demonic presence. There is a demon of unfaithfulness. Are you going to allow that demon to run roughshod in your life? And they have played the harlot departing from their God. They offer sacrifices on the tops of the mountains. They burn incense on the hills under oak, poplar, and terebinth because their shade is pleasant. Therefore, your daughters play the harlot. And your brides, literally your daughters-in-law, commit adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they play the harlot or your daughters-in-law, your brides, when they commit adultery. For the men themselves go apart with harlots and offer sacrifices with temple prostitutes. So the people, without understanding, are ruined. He repeats what he said back in verse 6. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. The people without understanding are ruined. No wonder Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. No wonder you had all these Jews and Romans collected around the cross crucifying the Messiah and the Jews present didn't know it was Him. Couldn't see Him for who He was. For who all of their own scriptures had prophesied and had spoken. I mean, the details about Jesus' life in the Hebrew scriptures are stunning. And they could attract everyone. They could have just been going down a checklist. But they had no understanding. They didn't read their own book. And sometimes I wonder if Jesus would show up here, how many Christians wouldn't know it was Him? Who is that guy? I don't know, he's he's real nice. Do we know Him so well by His Word that when He comes we'll say, there He is. Would you recognize Jesus? The punishment for harlotry, by the way, was stoning. Deuteronomy 22. If a woman's found to be a harlot, you bring her out to the edge of town, stone her to death. She's gone. But in this case, the harlotry is so rampant, spiritually and physically, God says, 
I'm not going to punish the girls. I'm not going to punish your daughters, and I'm not going to punish your daughters-in-law. Why not? Because you guys are out running to the harlots anyway. Why should I punish them for what you're doing? You're all in this same bed, so to speak. And so God says, I'm going to let the people's own sin run its course. And it's going to run to the ruin of them all. Numbers 32.23, be sure your sin will find you out. Isaiah 59 verse 12 says, our sins testify against us. Well, we come down to the end of the Lord's lawsuit and He turns a prophetic eye to the south, to Judah. Verse 15, though you Israel play the harlot, do not let Judah become guilty. Also, do not go to Gilgal or go up to Beth-Avon. And take the oath as the Lord lives. He gives a threefold warning here to Judah, not to Israel. Israel's already, the mother's gone. Mother's going to be wiped out. Even as he's calling to the children. But now he turns to Judah, the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom, and he gives them a threefold warning. Don't go to Gilgal, is number one. Do not go to Gilgal. What's in Gilgal? Well, Gilgal used to be the home of Elijah and Elisha's school of the prophets. Now, Gilgal, in this day, was a hotbed of idolatry. And so the warning to Judah is, don't go over to Gilgal there in Samaria. You stay out. Secondly, avoid Beth-Avon. Beth-Avon. It's not a real name. It's a twisting of the name Bethel. Bethel, house of God. Beth-Avon, house of deceit. And so he's saying, don't go to Bethel. Bethel was where Jacob had his dream. In the night, wrestling with the Lord there at Bethel. And God calls this place now the house of deceit. Why? Because it was in Bethel, as well as up in Dan in the north, Dan in the north, Bethel in the south, that Jeroboam set up golden calf worship. And the calf was still there. And those of the kingdom of Israel ran down. Those who were in the southern area of the northern kingdom went to to Bethel. Those who were closer to the north went up to Dan and they worshipped the golden calf. He said, don't do it. Stay out of those two places. And finally, he says, don't speak, quote, as the Lord lives. Don't take that oath. As the Lord lives. Wouldn't you want him to take that oath? And God says, don't, because it's all false. It's all false. It's like an atheist saying, God bless you. (laughs) Who are you talking about? It's like standing up and saying, God bless America. Which God? If it's not the one true God, don't say it. You know, the whole idea of people taking God's name in vain just... If it wasn't so heinous, it would crack me up because people take God's name in vain who claim not to believe in God. God says, don't take an oath with my name. Don't say, as the Lord lives. Don't even say it. I don't want to hear it. If you don't mean it, don't say it. And so this threefold warning goes out to Judah. Stay away from false idols. Avoid vain worship. And don't speak mindless oaths. And now the Lord summarizes Israel's harlotry and issues what I believe is a horrifying sentence for their adultery. Verse 16, Israel, since Israel is stubborn, like a stubborn heifer, 
Can the Lord now pasture them like a lamb in a large field? Now, you might want to note that some of your Bible translations might get this better. I don't know why they did it, but the New American Standard Bible turns it into a question. It's not a question. It's very literally right there. All of verse 16 should read like this. Since Israel is stubborn like a stubborn heifer, now the Lord will pasture them like a lamb in an open field. What's he saying? Now the Lord's going to kick them out to the nations. Their pasture is no longer going to be in the secure fold of the kingdom. Their pasture now is the world. They're scattered. They're gone because they are so stubborn. Verse 17, Ephraim is joined to idols. Let them alone. Their liquor gone. They play the harlot continually. Their rulers dearly love shame. The wind wraps them in its wings and they will be ashamed because of their sacrifices. The very thing a rebellious nation or person wants is ironically the very last thing they need. The thing a rebellious person wants is for God to leave them alone and that's the horrifying sentence. As we've shared in here before, God is still at work in this world. The Bible tells us Jesus holds all things together. If He lets go, it's all going to blow apart. The Bible tells us He sends the rain on the just and the unjust. Everybody gets the blessing of the rain. Everybody gets the blessings of this earth that produces good things. Everybody. Believers or not. We all are blessed. But for the rebellious to say, leave me alone, for God to do it is a horrifying sentence. Israel said it long enough and God said, finally, I'm going to leave him alone. I'm going to leave him alone. Romans 1.25, it's what Paul picked up on. He said, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. And then he describes homosexuality. He gave them over. He left them alone. And as I just said, the first thing in the world a rebellious heart clamors for is the last thing in the world that it really wants. And that's for God to leave it alone. When He does, what happens? Verse 19, the wind wraps them in its wings. In other words, they get swept away. They're just blown away. Or, or we can accept the genuine love of God The love of God that says, Ami, my people, Ruhama, mercy. And rather than be swept away by the winds of rebellion, we can be wrapped by the Holy Spirit. About whom Jesus said, The wind blows where it wishes, you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. And so we can be blown away by our sin, or we can be carried along by the wind of the Spirit. The choice is ours. And Father, I pray that You will lead us always to choose You. That You will hedge up thorns if we need them, walls if we need them. But Father, keep speaking to our hearts. Keep sanctifying us with the truth. And Father, offending us when we need to be offended. Encouraging us, Lord, as we need that encouragement. Carry us along by Your Spirit. Until at last you bring us home, in Jesus' name, amen.